Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 446 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here with my partner in crime, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of many, many books, but her latest one is The Wolf's Howl. Al, how are you? I did it the other way around this week. Oh, you've you've thrown me entirely. (laughs) How am I supposed to respond to that when it's not what I was expecting? Where was, oh, are you, Al? Like that's what I was expecting, right? Just one moment while while I gather my thoughts. Yes. Um, Well, actually, I have to be honest with you, perfectly honest with you, I am kicking myself. That's how I am. Oh, why? Why are you kicking yourself? Because I'm a doofus, that's why. Because... I, you know, we've, look, we've had endless discussions over the last few episodes. I'm sure everyone out there in the world is bored with me saying that I have been, you know, tidying up my photo files and doing all of that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yes. Really, honestly. Um, And so what happened was that I was on track to finally get that job completed. Like it's been pretty big. I've deleted like 7,000 photo files and, you know, various things. Like it's been massive. And I just left it a couple of days too late because last Wednesday, I think it was, Mm -hmm. uh, my email um, outlook collapsed and will not open, carked Mm. it entirely. And now I've sort of had a quick look at what I might need to do to fix this situation. And it turns out that I'm running such an old version of it that even if I was to transfer (laughs) everything across to the new computer now, it wouldn't open anyway. So I've got to, I have to take both of them to the, listen, listen to me, people don't do this. Um, I have to take both of them to the shop and get a nice, you know, IT person to assist me to just get this stupid mess sorted out. I, and I'm, so I'm kicking myself because, you know, it's that situation where everything works and while it works, I don't think about it. And then yeah. before I know it, eight years has passed, eight years has passed and yes. I'm still on the same computer and it starts to slow and I think, oh, I really must do something about that. Um, anyway, I was trying to do the right thing and tidy it up before I transferred everything so that at mm. least the new computer would be good to go. But of course... I overlooked that small software incompatibility crisis. And uh, anyway, here we are. Here we are, people. Thankfully, I have backups. So it should be the data. We should be able to get the data, the emails back and all of that sort of stuff. But it's just now it's got to go to the shop, you know. I would strongly recommend everyone. So I'm a mm. bit of an upgrader, not not a, not a frequent upgrader. I'm probably the, an average, you know, upgrader when it comes to computers. But the number of horror stories that I've heard from friends who, you, as you say, you go, oh, it's getting a bit slow. I really need to do something about that. Well, if you're thinking to yourself, I really need to do something about that, definitely go do something about it because it will crash at the most inopportune time. I know. I, I, you know, I, did, I did something about it. I, I ordered <laughs> yes. my new computer and my new computer is sitting here in a box on the floor mm. while I sort of, <laughs> oh, I'm just, anyway, don't do what Al did is all yes. I can say. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, so that's what I'm actually, kicking myself. I was about to record a podcast with um, a fabulous author who will be coming up, but literally the morning of, like an hour before, her computer just completely carked it totally. Mm-hmm. And she had to order a new one, so it's rescheduled for after the computer is, you know, know. going to get there. But, yeah, it will happen at the most inopportune time. 
I know. Anyway. Anyway. Woes, right? Technology. So uh, let's move on. <laughs> let's, let's leave Al in a puddle of worry over there. Let's just move on, shall we? Like nothing to see here, people. Keep moving. Now, in our podcast Facebook community, and if you haven't joined our listener community, please do because um, we'd love to have you in there. So many fantastic people interested in the world of writing from all over the place, and I love the discussions that are going on in there. Um, so if you haven't checked it out, just search on Facebook, So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. Um, it's good fun. But one of the conversations that was happening in the podcast community was from Kay Cameron, who said, I haven't written a single word since COVID started 18 months ago and looking to get back on the wagon again. Any advice, Australian Writer Centre course, NaNoWriMo, what do you do to get back on the horse after a long sabbatical? That's a really good question, Al. So I know you have some thoughts on this. Yes, Val. Like the way you just <laughs> Al, just letting me know that it's all coming my way any minute now. Um, it is an interesting question because this is actually something that you and I have talked about off podcast. Yes, people, we yes. do speak about things without you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just like being parents. We have conversations behind closed doors. Yes. Um, and, you know, you know, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast as well, but I, you know, I found this the last, you know, sort of six to eight weeks quite difficult. Um, I've had things that I had to do. I've had edits. I've been trying to think about, um, you know, I've talked about the fact that I've got this new idea that I'm really keen to write and I just haven't been able to do it. Like it's been mm. at the ennui as we discussed in the Facebook community yes. as well and on the podcast um, has been strong uh, for me this time. And usually like yeah. I'm someone who, uh, you know, we talked before about um, – the the importance of routine and discipline and habit, mm. um, particularly in the way that I manage to do all of the eight billion things that that I do. Like you know, you've got to you've got to make the time, you've got to structure your day, you've got to make sure that you're putting aside the time to do the things that you need to do, um, and that routine of, of showing up all the time is what's going to get you through this sort of yep. feeling. But it has been strong and it has been difficult. Hence, I have been deleting photo files, which I should have done faster <laughs> rather than actually, you know, working on anything. Um, and it's, so it's not easy. And Kay, you are not alone. And I think no. that the response that Kay received in our So You Want to Be a Writer Facebook community showed the same thing. Creativity is a difficult thing to manage when you're not feeling yourself. It is not an easy thing to kind of like, if you're feeling a bit sort of flat, it's not easy to go, hey, I'm I'm going to start, you know, writing a new story. Um, mm. But I think that a lot of the advice that Kay received in the group um, was, you know, was really valid. And I think her thoughts of even, you know, his first thoughts where she said, you know, do I do a course? Do I do NaNoWriMo? Like what what do I do mm. to spark it again? And I think that, that um, that's a great sort of, you know, tack to take in the first instance is to kind of choose something that you're really interested in doing and maybe do a new do a course on it, take your writing in a slightly different direction, learn something new, get your motivation and your impetus um, from someone else, from a teacher, from yeah. other people in your group. Um, I think, you know, a couple of the courses that the Writer's Centre does, you know, involve workshopping and that mm. can be a really great way because if, you're, if you've got that accountability aspect where people are expecting you to turn 
turn up next week with something for them to workshop, that yeah. really helps a great deal. You know, a writer's group can be useful, although it's been difficult, obviously, face-to-face ones, but there's online ones. And I've even seen people in the So You Want to Be a Writer group, um, community organising their own writer's groups, you know. Does anybody want to just, you know, workshop mm. or or keep each other accountable? And I think that's great. NaNoWriMo is, a, is, again, it's coming up in November. We've talked about it in the last couple of episodes. It can be a really good way just to kickstart you. I think you need yeah. to go into it. If you're feeling the way that I do at the moment and the way that Kay obviously is at the moment, um, you need to go into it with the idea that this is going to get me going, not necessarily thinking I'm going to get 50,000 words out yeah. of it because you kind of, you've got to take that level of pressure off. But writing with or alongside other people can be a terrific way to actually um, to actually get yourself back on the back on the horse, so to speak, back in the saddle. Um, and it is something that I, I do regularly and I'm actually going to be doing it again this year, just in my own quiet way. I'm not getting involved in a community. I'm not doing, I'm not doing hashtag write a book with Al this year, just simply for the fact that I, I need accountability, but I don't need the pressure. Um, I'm having to actually like look at where I'm at and being realistic and reasonable about what I'm actually going to be able to manage, you know, in the next sort of before before the end of this year. Um, mm. I've still got the HSC to get through and I say me because I feel like I'm doing it even though I'm not. In fact, I feel like I'm doing more of it than my actual child is doing, but that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah. You know, there's still, there's still a lot going on. Like we might have emerged from lockdown, but there's still a lot going on. So I think it's important to be kind of realistic about what's achievable and what's not but the kickstart of being of of participating in nano and having that deadline deadlines are very good for me they may not work for you but they work for me and I'm knowing that I need to have something done by the end of November uh, will help me a great deal the other thing that I did to help myself out of this situation that I've been in um, because I've had that edit that I've been working on and again we've been talking about this and gosh you guys are probably sick of me talking about it Um, (laughs) but um, it's been hanging over my head and I've been sort of having bits and pieces of it, but I haven't really been feeling the motivation to get in and get it done. I gave myself a deadline. I emailed my publisher and I said, I will have this done by the 31st of October because I decided I yes. needed it off my plate before November to mm. free me up to actually write something new. So mm. I've given myself that deadline and it's 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 been really good Like because I've felt the need to sit down and just get this thing done. It needs to get done. So I think deadlines can help. I think groups can help. I think, um, you know, like making yourself accountable is a really great way to do it. I'm actually also reading, I wrote a post um, on my blog, you know, in 2017, when I was going through a similar phase called Mm. six tips for getting back into the swing with your writing. So I'm reading my own advice. Gosh, that always helps. (laughs) um, It was actually about sort of blogging, but it was about, you know, Um, how at that stage uh, I'd stopped blogging daily, which was probably a good thing for everyone. Um, But, you know, because I'd stopped blogging daily, I'd got out of the habit of it. And um, so I was looking at ways to kind of, you know, get back into it. Um, and, you know, I went through a diff- through different phases of, of, of what I was doing to, to get myself back into the swing of writing. And so what I was, what was I doing? I was reading. Reading is a great way to really, you know, you're looking for inspiration. You're looking to refill that creative well. Um, I'm reading a lot of things. I was editing even then. Again, still, I'm always editing. There's editing going on all over the place. Um, I was, um, at that stage, I was listening to a lot of music because, 
um, songwriting I find really inspirational and I love the way that people put words and music together. This time around I've been listening to audiobooks um, because, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the way that the writer does things. I'm sort of instead of reading like a writer, I'm listening like a writer. Um, I've been walking a lot always walking a lot. Mm -hmm. I think if you're struggling with creativity, getting outside and, you know, doing that regular activity is really helpful. Um, And I've been talking about writing a lot again. And um, I know that, you know, talking about writing is not writing, but reminding yourself that you are a writer can be very, very helpful for getting that sort of creative juice going again as well. And now I'm going to stop talking and let Valerie say something. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're all fantastic tips and I completely agree with each and every one of them because ultimately to get out of, you know, that languishing, to get out of that that malaise that you might be feeling or the uninspired situation you find yourself in is you need motivation or inspiration and momentum. And all those things that Alderson said are perfect, especially for momentum to get back into the habit like NaNoWriMo and stuff like that. Um, uh, I think that also doing something like, um, you know, morning pages from the artist's way is one way if you don't want to necessarily commit to 50,000 words. But even if you do commit to 50,000 words, Alison's point is don't put pressure on yourself that you have to get to 50,000 words. Just get into the habit of doing it. Um, Mm. But otherwise you could do morning pages, but you don't have to do them morning. You can do them whenever. I almost never do them in the morning Um, where you just write three pages of whatever is in your head to get yourself and it doesn't have to be a piece of fiction. It doesn't have to be the story that you want to write to become the great Australian novel. It's just whatever's in your head, uh, just to um, get into the habit again. So I think that that's a really good one. Um, I think that people people know that I love the concept of creative dates where you take yourself out by yourself on a date uh, to, to – to do something or experience something or see something interesting or inspiring. But maybe, because this is what I've been thinking lately when I've been thinking, oh, what creative dates should I do now, is that we've spent so much time uh, behind our computer screens really because we've, you know, well, depending on what state you live in, but we've been um, having to, to be a bit more isolated, is I'm trying to book in actual things that are like literary creative dates. So Mm. they might range from going to a literary lunch um, and shout out to one of our uh, alumna, Joanna Nell, her her literary lunch is going to be at Pillu in Freshwater in Sydney on at the end of November. Um, And that so it could be anything like going to a literary lunch too just catching up for coffee in real life as opposed to on zoom with your writing related friends Mm. um and and there's because there's something else that happens when you're catching up for, for coffee you know and um i i also think that something like um as you know my local bookshop has a cafe and uh, I often go there and I went there and just started talking to the lady next to me. Obviously, I'm craving oh human connection. Oh, wow. Okay. She's <laughs> so become just, that lady. <laughs> so I just started talking to the lady next to me. and But as it turns out, she used to write the two of us column for the good weekend for like 
not every week, but regularly for five years. So we had we talked about heaps of writing related things, and mm. um, and we started uh, uh, talking because she was writing a poem, you know, at the table. Um, so just that those sort of real life connections um, can can be really useful. I'll just tell you an aside, a funny story. It's not actually writing related, but it is related <laughs> to. Um, having coffee in the bookshop mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> is that, so the other day like seriously yesterday um a tradie came to fix something an awning and I don't know why but he's he brought his mate with him <laughs> um who, he's brought his mate who's doing nothing except for hanging out so his mate was just in our kitchen reading the paper and I started talking to him and he was talking about his life and all of this kind of stuff and after about uh 15 minutes I said I've met you before. It just hit me. It just hit me. Something in my head went, I've met you before and one time you went to a house in Mossman and a lady opened the door in her nightie and seduced you. And he was in shock. And I was sort of like, I don't even know how I know this. And uh, he he was like, uh, how do you know that? And I said, I don't know how I know that, but I know that. And then I went and did something else and I came back because it hit me. I had met him in my local bookshop and he, he thought, I'm never going to meet this woman again, so I'm going to divulge my deepest, darkest secrets to this stranger. And lo and behold, he was in my, at my kitchen table like five months later. There you go. Fun it's fact. Just... <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna have to quietly put that one aside and tiptoe away gracefully into the next room. <laughs> the things so, that happen in your local bookshop, right? The things that happen. I guess what we're trying to say here is that if you are struggling to find your motivation and inspiration internally, look for external factors that may assist you. And this may be chatting to tradies in a bookshop. <laughs> Or it might be a course or some other thing. What do you think? Yes. Fabulous. Uh, okay, let's move on. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> it's, it's getting to, it's sounding like a, an episode of The Bachelorette oh, right now. So let's God. move on. All right. All right. So. Let's move on to our competition. I love Tony Park. So we have three copies of his latest book, Blood Trail, to give away. Evil is at play in a South African game reserve. And you might remember that we've interviewed Tony Park in the past and he writes a lot of um, books set in Africa. Anyway, a poacher vanishes into thin air, defying logic and baffling ace tracker Mia Greenaway. Meanwhile, Captain Sani Van Rensburg, still reeling from a personal tragedy, is investigating the disappearance of two young girls who locals fear have been abducted for use in sinister traditional medicine practices. But poachers are also employing witchcraft, paying healers for potions they believe will make them invisible and bulletproof. When a tourist goes missing... Mia and Sani must work together to confront their own demons, which challenges everything they believe in while following a bloody trail that seems to vanish at every turn. So, yes, you have a chance to win one of three copies of Blood Trail by Tony Park. Uh, Just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 1st of November. So that's writerscentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, 
did you hear me take a breath in there? Yes, can you, you hear, did. I, I just need to say also, if anyone is listening to this and they can hear the person chopping down a tree next door, I'd just like to apologise for any random chainsaw noises you might hear. I think they're chopping it quite silently because I can't hear You can't it. hear it? Well, I'm just, yes. I'm just, just in case, okay. just so that we just don't actually not acknowledge that it might be happening for someone with sure. sensitive ears. Yes. There is actually a gum tree being decimated in the next street. Ooh. Anyway, okay, All right. see, what, see what I'll talk about, anything <laughs> except the word of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to, are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> Apparently I am. Okay, this is really good. Factotum, F-A-C-T-O-T-U-M, factotum. Do you know what it is? Yeah, I do. Do you know what? It's the kind of word that you actually see, strangely enough, in crime novels quite a lot. Oh, Mm. okay. Yeah, you do. Anyway, Mm. I'm just saying. Well, for those of you who don't know, it's someone employed to do all kinds of work for another. So these days it can be like a general assistant or often an office will have a factotum, which is like the person who does all the, you know, odds and end jobs. Factotum. Yes. So in the in the crime novels, it's the kind of the the right hand person of the big crime kim, kingpin who does all the mm. killing and stuff. Yeah. Yes, yes, See? like the fixer. Yeah. That. All right. But also People might remember that Alison asked me last week to find out the origins of the word Tellurian because last week's word was Tellurian, which is something that is it's an inhabitant of Earth. So we're all mm. Tellurians, right? Mm. Mm. So where what's the origin story of that word Al wanted to know, along with other people in the podcast community, it seems, on Facebook. Yes. Um, and... It is um, from the Latin tellus, T-E-L-L-U-S, which is a synonym synonym for terra, as in meaning earth. Mm. Because tellus, it means ground or earth, and it is a synonym of terra. So both versions mean earth. Also, tellus was an ancient Roman goddess of the earth. Wow. Yes. She, that's the thing with Valerie. She can always give you far more information than you ever want to know. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. Well done. I'm so glad you did that, though, because the, the inquiring minds did want to know. There was a lot of discussion about why this would possibly be so. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, so usually this is the point, Al, where we Mm. talk to our writer in residence, isn't it? It is absolutely this point every podcast (laughs) episode. 
right now. We're doing something a little bit different this episode because not a writer in residence but an agent in residence. Ooh, that's exciting. Yes. Now, I thought it would be useful for us to have a chat with Lucinda Halpern. Now, Lucinda runs Lucinda Literary in New York. So she's an agent based in New York. Her client list uh, has a whole heap of different fiction and non-fiction people who are who are doing extremely well. She started her career at HarperCollins in the um, publicity division where she worked on campaigns like um, Freakonomics, great book, love that book. She's also um, worked as a marketing consultant to Gretchen Rubin who wrote those those books on happiness and habits and, you know, all, all, mm. um, lots of lots – of, incredibly best-selling books, but she now represents authors in business, health, lifestyle, memoir, fiction, lots of different uh, genres. And I thought it would be useful to pick her brain on what she expects from clients and what are the chances also for especially Australian authors in the United States. So let's have a listen to Lucinda Halpern. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lucinda. Thank you. Now, you're talking to me from New York where you ha- have your literary agency, Lucinda Literary. Tell me, first of all, when did you found your agency? So I founded the agency in 2011. So we are now a decade in and I was only in my late 20s at the time. So it's been an exciting ride. <laughs> what made you think, oh, I'm going to found a literary agency? So I have an unconventional path. Um, I call my resume a smattering of of non-commitments that has actually served me well. I started in publicity at HarperCollins. Uh, I found that very compelling, but ultimately really wanted to work with writers in an editorial fashion. And I also knew that I could sell and that I was great at building relationships. So at a point in my mid-20s, I thought, there's got to be something I can do with this. And I started knocking down the doors of every New York literary agency. Uh, I found someone really wonderful at a a boutique called Fletcher and Company who was willing to take me on without, without a list, without any guaranteed revenue, and just sort of with the sheer chutzpah of, you know, let's, let's do this, let's sell books. And uh, I had some early success at that. I was also at the po- at that point doing marketing consulting work for Gretchen Rubin of the Happiness Project and a few other marquee clients of, of their agency. And two years in, um, which was probably a bit too soon in retrospect, I, I started Lucinda Literary. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. So obviously it's gone very well for you. Now, what sorts, how would you describe the kinds of authors who you represent? So it's very clear for us, we represent books that change the way people live, think, and behave. So for us, thought the thought leadership component is really important. Now, like every agency today, as you know, those are more film interested, we're looking also for fiction of cinematic value and potential. So it's not to say we don't do fiction. We love fiction. We actually do a small degree of uh, children's fiction. There's another agent, wonderful agent at my firm, Connor Eck, doing that. Uh, But we're really known in the industry for doing practical nonfiction uh, in in this vein of, of changing the way that people think, work, and live. 
So some of our authors include Susan Pierce Thompson, who has a very uh, successful book series called Brightline Eating. She is a, a neuroscientist who realized that her greatest addiction was food. She founded a business around the science behind that, and she's taken her message to you know, a an audience globally. Uh, with, with that success of her first New York Times bestseller, we represent Chris Bailey of the Productivity Project, which has also been translated in over 20 countries at this point, maybe well-known in Australia. Ron Friedman, who's recently written a fabulous book called Decoding Greatness with Simon & Schuster. I'm sort of going through the list, a wonderful uh, fiction author with a four-book series with HarperCollins called Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, her book just launched yesterday. So it's Nicola Krauss of the Nanny Diaries. Um, you know, it's a bit of it's. I guess what's what's drawn me to these projects is a powerful mission, and you know, these are authors who want to make an impact, not for their individual network, but for a broad audience. And uh, you know, I'm I'm just a, a sort of a sucker for creativity and the artists behind these wonderful works, and and really working with them from the ground up. Mm. Now, I want to come back and talk a lot more about these nonfiction books because I'm really passionate about nonfiction books. Um, mm. But I want to just briefly, because I, I was looking at your website and you do, as you mentioned, you do represent some fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you just mentioned children's fiction, but you do. I, I noticed that there was adult fiction there too. Am I, did I, was I seeing things? No, I mean, there, there certainly is. So Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, for instance, being, mm. you know, some some wonderful fiction that we're representing now. Uh, the, the new work of Nicola Krauss, who wrote The Nanny Diaries. Um, I'm sort of going through the, the list here. I mean, it's a smaller degree of fiction because that is challenging for debut authors. Hard to find if you're looking in your, you know, proverbial slush pile of blind queries that come to you. So many people think they can write a book. So few actually have really thought it through or, you know, gotten sort of professional reads. So fiction's tough. I mean, it, mm. it's it's tough. But yes, we are we are looking uh, as many agencies for our next wonderful fiction project. All right. So um, I know that a lot of listeners will be thinking, okay, here's Lucinda. She has an agency, literary agency in New York. Is she really open to Australian authors? Hmm. So what's your answer to that? <laughs> so I am, I mean, I lived abroad in, in Paris. I went to school in Montreal. I've always sort of had the zest for, for travel, for language, and for fostering the careers of authors in, in other countries. Why is that? Because I'm fascinated by what might be the same and what might be different for those audiences. So Absolutely, we receive queries from Australian writers and from a number of others in other countries. Um, I think what's helpful when you're querying a New York agent is to actually say, and I sort of recommend this for, for new authors across the board, is to say, I have a publishing offer in hand in my, in my country, um, and I'm curious if there's U.S. potential, and would you be willing to work with me in a partnership to sell those rights in the U.S. and elsewhere? Because what I see happen too often is that an author will sign all of their translation rights away, mm. sometimes their film rights, which is really a mistake, uh, to a publisher that wants it. They won't use an agent or an attorney. And then they go seeking a U.S. agent and say, what can you do with this? Not much. 
Mm. Even if the book has been a success, what we can do in those scenarios is work with you on your next book idea mm. uh, with sort of that sales track behind you and your your audience already built in, in Australia, for example. Yeah. And there's not much you can do because basically you don't have the rights to sell. Exactly. Yes. So, so even if you think, oh, this has got to be a film or this definitely has Mm. an American audience, because that's sort of where the heart of readership lies in New York originally and in, in the U S you know, so a lot of authors think there's potential here, but they don't think through the rights aren't available um, or, or, you know, or most of the time they are querying writers who don't yet have a book deal in Australia, using that mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. could this be popular in the US? Well, the first question I'm going to ask as an agent or publisher is, what audience have you built in the US? What is the demonstrable proof that mm-hmm. this concept would work there? So that's a combination of what we call platform. Yeah. Um, and please let me know if I should define that term for your listeners or <gasps> if they might be familiar <laughs> with it. We we do talk about it quite a lot, but there might be some new listeners, so please go ahead. Sure, sure. So platform being so important in today's market and, and differs if you are a nonfiction expert or if you are a PhD or a doctor or a finance or a psychologist who may not have built that public social media presence, or if you're a fiction writer who just has a wonderful book, but doesn't necessarily have a thousand, you know, many thousands of Twitter followers. So mm-hmm. we do evaluate platform, meaning what your existing audience is and what your reach could be. Mm-hmm. Some of that surrounds a really crisp, timely idea. So publishers are willing to sometimes look past this person doesn't have, you know, substantial online recognition, but wow, is this an idea that will find a readership? So it's I'd just say the part same of the zeitgeist with, or something. Exactly. So I'd say the same with Australian writers. I mean, I want my whole mission at Lucinda Literary is for writers to feel empowered, to, to, to find an audience for their voice and for their idea. We work with them on how to do that. So if the idea is big, especially in nonfiction, there is a U.S. agent who will say, this is to someone who hasn't yet sold the rights to a publisher, you know, let's work on this together, but let's really focus on ways that we can paint this this picture to publishers of the American audience that lies ahead. Right. So basically you're saying that uh, uh, an author can come to you, an Australian author can come to you in a number of scenarios. Number one, if they already have a publishing deal and they've sold, you know, in Australia and so, but they still have some kind of international rights that you can then work with. Yes. Um, And number two, if they have a unique idea that is of the moment, they may not have a platform yet, but because it's of the moment, you're willing to work with them to, mm. to, to build on that and see see where, they, where that goes. Would that be a good Absolutely. summary? Absolutely. Yes, that's a perfect summary. It sounds like you're working right in the industry. That <laughs> um, you really you you put that very succinctly. So that's exactly right. I guess the third option, Valerie, would be you have an existing book. It's so it's it's had some degree of sales success. Now you're looking for an agent to work with you on the next idea. Yes. Okay. Of course. Now what happens, let's say uh, an Australian author comes to you, they've got the Australian book deal and they have rights that they, that you can work with in America, mm-hmm. but 
and they have a platform in Australia, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they haven't yet got one in America. Is that something that you're willing to take on or is it essential for them to have already, you know, done the speaking circuit and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, been in America and established quite a presence there? So so let's go back to those sort of gradations of platform. Mm. Um, if it's If it's an expert, and by expert, I mean a productivity blogger, a, a lifestyle brand, um, a, someone who has a successful online course, but doesn't have those credentials of journalist, doctor, psychologist, right? They're not in a sort of a clinical or research setting. Then that is really going to be gauged on online following, which fortunately is global. Mm. So Publishers are not differentiating, oh, this is Australia and this is US. They're saying this person has thousands of YouTube followers. And so there's obviously a market here. So I think that that, I think the power of social media has now transcended the boundaries of language and of territory, which is why we really encourage authors to build it up. However, if you are a doctor in Australia writing practical nonfiction, and you have speaking relationships or organizational relationships. And again, that idea that hasn't been done before, uh, we are are looking to that as a a gauge of platform as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are so many different ways to to collage this. And I really just want writers to feel empowered and not daunted by the process. Yeah, sure. So some people, some of these writers, they want to change the world. You want these books yep. to change people's lives. They um, enjoy writing or in, in a, in mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. you know decent at it, but they got don't really know what they don't want to market. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. it's. I mean, they're not passionate about market. They understand. They mm-hmm. want to, but they're not passionate about marketing. How much of that do they really need to embrace or do you do it all or, or, or you know, yeah, yeah, what do they need to do? Because uh, they need so, to market to sell books. Sure. So, again, Lucinda Literary being different from other agencies, we have a marketing and publicity background. So we bring online marketing guidance to our authors. We bring media relationships, so it wouldn't be uncommon for us to reach out to an editor at the New York Times or Wall Street Journal and say, here's an idea. We've now editorially worked on that article with the author. We'll Mm -hmm. utilize those relationships to build that U.S. platform. Again, I mean, the writer has to be so winning. The idea has to be so winning for us to do that work on spec, because if we don't think there's a deal to be had, we're not we're not getting compensated for it. So there mm. are agencies who will work in a very, and, and ours is one, that will work in this very hands-on way to help you market, think about marketing in a way that's fun and accessible. There are also a number of authors who will employ outside publicists or social media firms, ideally based in the U.S., that you know have connections in the industry, that can be the people that you offload the work to if you hate marketing. I mean, I, half of the authors we work with do not like marketing <laughs> and half of them are creating their New York Times bestsellers before they've even sold the book. So it's a, <laughs> it's a nice array, right? Like many times I'm in the seat of let's write the best book possible first before we run the marketing campaign. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So there, so there are ways to do it. Have I answered that question? Yeah, before? yeah, yeah. Okay. So okay. you, 
It sounds like for you to take an author on, they, it, there needs to be quite a number of uh, elements. Apart yes. from the fact that it needs to be a great idea, it needs to be one that's fairly, um, it, it's, it has wide appeal, obviously, because yes. it needs to um, sell a lot. Um, it needs to be something fairly unique because, yes. it, you know, and of the moment, it needs an author who is willing to get out there you know, yes. and yes. be in the spotlight and be a thought leader. And you kind of can't be a thought leader just hiding in your office. You need to be out there, um, whether that's online or, or live. It needs quite a lot of things. So where do you find these unicorns? Where do you right. find these, these, you know, yes, these sure. authors and ideas that go together? So I would, I would tackle this. I mean, as you're speaking, I have so many thoughts, um, <laughs> but I would say that the best thing you can do with your query letter, because I'm assuming the listeners here are thinking about becoming aspiring authors, right? Like they are, they are thinking about the book they have to sell. The best thing you can do in your pitch to agents and publishers is say, I'm the only person to write this book, or I'm the best person to write this book. Now, do you say it in that language, which is pretty arrogant? No, uh, you you prove it in the course of your letter. You know whether that is I'm the only one who's had this life experience, and so here's my memoir, or mm. whether it's I've done the research that no one's done. You know, there there I'm the only expert. You know, amidst all of these other experts, uh, using Susan Pierce Thompson as an example, who has discovered the science that actually helps with food addiction. So it's again about expressing that that one of one, that one and only nature of your idea and your credibility mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how I find our, our clients. So I would say that like many agencies, you know, we're getting pitched easily 10 cold queries a day, easily. Mm -hmm. um, of those, you know, it's maybe 2% that we've signed from out of the slush pile. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm sorry to use that term. It's just so, it's so commonly mm -hmm. used. Um, mm -hmm. But we've, the, the great news is, so we've signed, you know, maybe five to 10 authors in the course of our doing business, and we have sold those books to major publishers. We've worked with the, the authors on their original idea. So I think that's a hopeful thing. Yeah. The other ways that we're finding clients are largely by referral. Our, our authors say, there's someone great you need to meet. We take those calls. And the last way we're finding them is we're scouting. So by that, I Where mean- Where do you scout? <laughs> well, going back to platform, you know, a modern love column in the New York Times has been classically the way that agents, you know, you write a modern love essay, you have 20 agents after you. So we signed up a wonderful- writer, Michelle Dowd, she's got a book about, she's got a memoir coming out about growing up in a cult um, that we are, you know, hoping will be in the vein of, of educated. She wrote this, mm -hmm. this New York Times modern love column. I said, I've got to sign it up. And we had a phone call on Monday. Uh, so I think being present in those notable outlets that have a U.S. readership, but also now it's about having a Quora presence, having a, you know, a Twitter feed that's getting traction, a YouTube channel. There are so there are conferences, which used to the conference circuit, which used to be in person now is more virtual. So many different ways that we are scouting, you know, journalists um, and, and saying, this is a unique story. This is a unique idea. We'll do the outreach. And how often do you 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 obviously um, can recognize there's something here, like with Michelle Dowd and uh, mm. what she wrote in the Modern Love column. How often do you go? This 
absolutely something here or there's there's a there's a potentially a memoir behind this and the author just goes uh, uh, really <laughs> or are they funny. all ready to go they are excited i mean for all the right. most part for the most part you'll if you hear back i mean it's interesting we can touch on self publishing a bit because there you know increasingly there are authors who wish to take that route and i am in the very strange position of convincing them why they should go with a traditional publisher that pays for their book and does the marketing design and editing. Um, so I would say it's quite rare to approach uh, a journalist or a writer cold and say, would you be interested in working on a book and not hear, let's, yeah. you know, let's talk tomorrow. Sure. <laughs> um, whether they're open to the editorial vision you have is a great way to assess mm. whether you two would be good working in what I think of as a lifetime marriage, right? This is about yeah. a career. It's not about a one hit wonder. So, mm. you know, if they say that's absolutely not what I would do or have in mind, it's not a fit. Yeah. More often yeah. than not, they're deferring to the expertise of an agent who knows the market. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's, yeah. So you're obviously at the coalface in the literary scene there, um, particularly as as you said with nonfiction books. And so you are crafting with the author the actual uh, pitch, you know, the actual book proposal to to the publishers. Now I I mm. often give feedback on book proposals here, and mm. especially nonfiction ones. Like I'm currently also judging the Australian Business Book Awards, and there's a whole pile over there. Um, so I I, I I read a lot of those, but when I was given, um, I have a, I was given a copy of um, uh, Tim Ferriss's original for our work week proposal, and it was the size of a phone book. Now, is that normal, <laughs> or was that? I mean, or if they maybe not as big as a phone book, but. The impression I got was that it had to, it, 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 you had to have a lot more into it. The marketing mm-hmm. plan was so granular, it mm. was jaw-dropping, whereas here, yes, you do need to outline a marketing plan to some level, but it didn't go for, and I'm holding up like two, inch, uh, two inches here That's <laughs> so funny. in a giant That's so folder. Is, yeah, that's not as common. That's not as common anymore. That's, that is a, and at least we're in the fortunate position of not doing that as much at Lucinda Literary. We have relationships with editors where, you know, on the basis of a 20 page document, Mm. it's possible to get a six figure deal because the writing is really crisp. The idea is immediately a get it's present um, and and the platform is there now. How are editors gauging platform? They probably in the in the era of Tim Ferriss selling that that book needed the author to do a lot of walking through. Now they do a Google mm. search. Is this person known or not? You know, yeah. I had an interesting conversation with an editor at Penguin Random House the other day. I said, could I ever take you take you know set up a, a meeting where an author walks you through a PowerPoint presentation because they're evaluating the person behind the book as much as they are the presentation. Now, this is wonderful news for Australian authors who don't have to fly to New York to meet with New York (laughs) publishers. They can do it on Zoom. So Mm. I think a lot more is being evaluated about the author's potential to market and and existing presence and notoriety uh, as much as the idea. So don't worry about creating that phone book of a document. (laughs) Really worry about the quality of the idea. 
Mm. That's, of course, if people remember phone books. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Have you ever yeah. worked with an author, whether in Lucinda Literary or previously, who had that killer idea mm. and then just could... You say it's a lifetime marriage, but then they never mm-hmm. followed up. They, they didn't have the second child. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I'm for whatever of one reason, in particular <laughs> of the second child. So they had the great book, and then for yes. their second, they never. Well, just or, or, went or they anywhere. just didn't. It, it was they were one hit wonder because they couldn't produce or yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, we call the second book the sophomore effort for a reason, mm. right? It's uh, that first breakout book will always have, and again, great news for debut fiction writers, a lot of interest and appetite. Because once you've had that first book, you're pretty much gauged on the on the data of did the book sell or or not, right? That will be telling to an editor what the track was mm. of what we call the track of the author. Um you know, do they ever not fulfill that second book proposal? It happens. Usually the experience of publishing a first book is so exciting and so life-changing and career-making that authors will go forth with the second book. And (laughs) is it always a successful? No, I could never say it is, right? It's tough to build on the success of a really, um, you know, popular first book. Mm. Now, you have a background, as you've mentioned, in publicity. You're a publicity at HarperCollins. Um, you've worked, uh, you know, marketing other books. What was, when you were growing up, did you think, uh, always think, I want to work in books? Or did you start off with something else and then move into the book industry? So, no, I mean, I, I lived in Paris on a sofa for a matter of months to work at, a, you know, took one great job offer having a film internship. At that time, it was working in this person's office on the floor, sort of sorting and filing. My French friend said, what is going on? You write poetry, you love books, you're an avid reader, you are originally from New York. Why aren't you living at, you know, in the center of it all and trying to make a publishing career. So pretty early on, I, I knew it had to be books. And that's pretty common with anyone who gets into the industry, right? It's not an industry that's known for its high pay. And it's, you know, you've got to have the love of books and the love of mm-hmm. authors. You know, to touch on another question you asked about how quickly I know if the mm-hmm. idea is, is there, it's an instinct that happens within five minutes. To, to give an example, when Black Girls Must Die Exhausted, which was originally a self-published series, was referred to me on the title alone, but with a brief pitch, I thought, this is so extraordinary. I, I need to get on the phone with this author right away. So, you know, the the analogy is that within five minutes of meeting my husband, who's also a literary agent, I knew we were <laughs> going to have children together. Um, I've always been a highly instinct-driven person. I think the best agents are. Mm. Uh, and so, so I'm very quick to move on something I think is great. But what I find fascinating and would like to explore a little further is that, I mean, you're right. Your friend in Paris said, Hey, why aren't you, you know, in New York at the center of it? And, and, you know, your story kind of reminds me of, um, is it Joanna Rakoff, my Salinger year, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's fiction, right? I get the romanticism with fiction. I don't necessarily, how do you get that that same thing, the, the same romanticism isn't with the productivity project, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. How did you, <laughs> yeah, or yeah. how to eat better, order? How do right. you, how did you 
get passionate about these types of topics, the thought leadership, actual, you know, this is how you make more productive. It's it's a very easy answer. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. We all we all uh, read books that relate to something Mm -hmm. we're going through or we can envision or we can relate to. So you know, I was an entrepreneur who wanted to have a successful business. Wow, I'm working with these these thought leaders who have built that, who have knowledge, rich knowledge that I could, you know, learn from. Um, so it's all about the the curiosity and the learning. So to get passionate about business books, and I guess early on in publicity, my wonderful boss who remains a mentor to this day is like, you've got to find passion in everything. And I often say to young people, it's not about your your passion that drives you into something. It's about what you bring to whatever you're working on. Um, So I can get really excited about a CEO with a fabulous idea who has this, you know, mega platform and a big team working with him. I find that exciting uh, if the knowledge is rich. Mm. Uh, so, so that's how I got interested in practical nonfiction. It certainly, I wasn't reading self-help as a 30 year old, you know, but, but, but deep into my thirties, I, I did start to read self-help and found it, found it really, um, life-changing. So I thought I want to work with those, those books that change the way people live, work and behave. Mm-mm. So tell me, um, what are some of the biggest or most common, mistakes or, or, you know, assumptions that people make that are incorrect, um, who, who come to an agent and so that listeners can avoid them. Sure. So I guess, again, trying to think about your audience and specifically one common misconception is that you need to be based in the center of it all as a writer. You don't, right? So you could be in Australia and you could try and and don't let that daunt you. I, I meet with so many writers in our workshops that say, well, I'm based in Idaho. I'm never going to have a chance. It's so hard to access. Well, the best news for you is that we're in a Zoom world. And so mm. you can have those meetings. You don't need to be um, in the in the center at all. To speak to other common mistakes, going back to the query letter needs to express why you're the best person or the only person to write the book, especially in nonfiction, especially mm. with memoir. You know, how many memoir, how many people want to write their life story? Mm. That's the most common query we receive. Unless you've proven that this story is other world is both otherworldly and relatable, and that there's an existing audience or a potential audience for this book, I, I don't, you know, I'm sorry to be very blunt. It's just it's not going to sell. Mm. So, so common query mistakes. Um, I would say being very synopsis heavy. But I leave the letter still not really understanding what the action is. You know, who's Mm. who of these characters? Like, what's particular to them? Um, If it's sounding like everything I've seen before, that's the biggest issue. If it's not, if I'm not grasping it at the letter, at the the letter level, it's how can we sell it to a publisher? How can we sell it to a reader, right? That's what a publisher is after. What's Mm. the Amazon copy look like? Mm, mm, why does someone want to pick this book up mm. so i just see too much you know too much too many letters that are lengthy overly lengthy on the synopsis yet i'm still not clear on the elevator pitch for the book and you haven't positioned why you're the best to write it yep 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 those are the deadly sins (laughs) (laughs) let's come back to the uh, lifetime marriage because part of the lifetime marriage when you get to the second book 
is coming up with a really an equally unique and catchy and you know um hopefully popular concept what proportion uh it, it, does does it happen where the author like they know this is my second book and what proportion is you because you obviously as you say you've got an instinct you'll know oh my god your second book needs to be x yeah. so yes. how, how does that work uh, it, it's a negotiation in the most friendly <laughs> in the most friendly way it is very common for authors to come to us with an idea for the second book and for us to say i don't think that's it I don't think that's big enough. And that's another common error of the query letter and the book pitch. It's like, you're thinking too small. What gets the broadest readership? So it's a conversation. Uh, Fortunately, with the second book, you can also involve the input of the existing editor, right? Those first publishing contracts have an option on them. So the publisher gets to look. We involve the editor as a critical part of this trio of this relationship in what do you think of this idea? And and that sort of solves it. I love this. Let's develop it together. Let's not do that phone book of a proposal. Let's do a five sheet that I can take to get buy-in from my publisher. Um, or I, again, I don't think that's big enough. Why don't you go write it as a medium or a LinkedIn essay and let's see what traction it gets. Yeah, right. Great. All right, cool. What's the most exciting thing about your job? Oh, I mean, I leap into work every day and nothing is happier for me than a Monday. Um, I think it's the variety. So as I think you know, Valerie, we've now started this new division of the company, which I'm so excited about, which is really workshops for writers. So they're both live and they're on-demand courses, but the live, the live sessions, I get to meet with writers at all stages and writing in all kinds of books and really coach them and feel like I have an impact on, you know, maybe their books, maybe their careers. Uh, So that just allows me to go back to the heart of why I founded this, which was to help a really large audience of writers rather than sort of an elite few. Um, But it's it's the variety, right, of, of, Mm -hmm. you know, being 24-7 immersed in your work, uh, dreaming about it at night, and having every day look different. And what's the most challenging thing? Well, it has to be um, when, when books get rejections. So mm. we're in the business of giving rejections. Uh, then you spend all of this time, sometimes up to a year, developing the idea of the proposal. You take it to your contacts and, you know, one after one, people start to back out, right? Because the decision, it's an investment decision for a publisher. Mm. So it's been, you know, it's been a long time since I haven't been able to find a deal or or the home for a book that I'm working on. And I really think that's about just having the experience of and the relationships of I know what people are looking for. Yeah. But but when you get those passes, it's it's heartbreaking, you know, <laughs> and and I'm not I'm not the sort of agent that's forwarding those along. I mean, God forbid, I don't want to take, you know, authors on the roller coaster with me. I want to I want to present good news at the end of the day. But you get those 8 p.m. letters like backing out and you just think, oh, this is hard, you know, after everything we've done to get the one paragraph response of this won't work. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, And I guess this might be helpful, sorry, to raise a second point, Mm. but the biggest rejection reason we hear from editors is Mm. 
this doesn't break out of the pack because new books are competing with classic perennial bestsellers. Every shelf is crowded. So if you're not very clear about your differentiation, it's it's not going to be a win. Mm -mm. And uh, finally... (laughs) Well, mm. if you have time to read for fun, <laughs> what do oh you goodness. read for fun? I do read fiction. So, um, you know, I, I do read fiction. I, I love it. Um, I'm thinking of the new Sally Rooney, the new Leanne Moriarty. Um, I'm sort of in that phase of being, uh, you know, a youngish mom that needs a good escape. Um, mm. So I'm not quite as as literary as I used to be in my taste, but I love practical nonfiction, right? I have to yeah. keep up with it to know what the comps are. And um, and so I love those books that, you know, help me learn something new and help me improve my own behavior. Okay. And actually, this is the final question, which we ask <laughs> of all of our uh, guests, but you're answering it from an agent's point of view. Uh, what are your top three tips to aspiring writers who hope to, you know, sign with someone like you one day? Mm. So I think the first we've touched on, it's get out there, create your your presence in some way, whether that's writing the article for a notable publication, whether that's building your social media presence, you know, just gaining that that proven expertise in your, your area. The second thing, which we didn't touch on very much, but I think is sort of the no longer dirty little secret of the industry for expert-driven books or PhD-driven nonfiction is get a collaborator to work with you. I mean, we represent a number of very talented ones that we send to literary. They bring the technical expertise, they bring connections, they can help you develop mentally with your idea. Um, A lot of nonfiction authors that publishers are interested in are natural marketers. They're not natural writers. That's not their trade. So Mm. don't try to do the book yourself. Don't, and, and definitely don't approach me with a full manuscript that doesn't have a proposal. Why do all of that work before an mm. agent's even said, this is viable, let's develop this together. But when you mean a collaborator, do you mean like a ghostwriter? I mean a ghostwriter, but I mean an outside editor. You know, right. there are mm-hmm. different degrees of, sure. of ways that you can involve someone, but I hugely recommend it for fiction or nonfiction to get a sort of professional edit um, yeah, of course. before you go out to, to agents. Uh, what would be the third thing? I Oh, you know, research. So you can't come to me and say, I've got a brand new business book idea. And then I say, there are 10 books like this on the market. <laughs> You've got to come to me and say, these are the books. These are the comps. That's the way publishers think. And here's how mine is different. And you're meaning competitive, competing titles. Yes. 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 Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Lucinda. Really appreciate it. Such a pleasure to meet you. All right, there we go. Lucinda Halpern. It was great. I, I, I love it when we do industry stuff and I think we should yes, do more of it. So maybe stand by in 2022 for a bit yes. more sort of nuts and bolts. What do you think? Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, absolutely. It's always useful to get an idea of what the decision-making process and what goes on behind the scenes because it's not just about the technical aspects of writing. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely No, and right. also just to recognise that um, – agents are people publishers are people like it's a people thing it's it's you know um it's a relationship-based industry it's a people-based industry it's not just about words so yeah Mm. I reckon we should do that it's an entire ecosystem yeah uh all right so we're now at the end of this week's episode what are you doing in the coming week Al 
oh, well, you know, apparently I'll be taking my computer to hospital and uh, oh, yeah. hopefully getting my edit finished by the 31st. Hopefully those two things are not going to be mutually incompatible. Um, we shall <laughs> see how we go. Um, what about you? What will you be doing? Well, I need to get a bit more sleep because I haven't um, had enough sleep this week and I shall no doubt be heading back to my local bookshop cafe <laughs> Ooh, and see know. who else I'm, I'm going sure to encounter. I'm allowed to go there after that. <laughs> the first story about the poetry writing, you know, poet was lovely yeah. and then we, then we went down a whole different road, a whole different road. But, anyway. you know, maybe there's some good fodder there for a story, right? Yes. Yeah, right. All right. So where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate. What about you, Valerie? Where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.